Chapter Six of the Woodlanders. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. The Woodlanders by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Six. Meanwhile, Winterborne and Grace Melbury had also undergone their little experiences of the same homeward journey. As he drove off with her out of the town, the glances of people fell upon them. The younger, thinking that Mr. Winterborne was in a pleasant place, and wondering in what relation he stood towards her. Winterborne himself was unconscious of this. Occupied solely with the idea of having her in charge, he did not notice much with outward eye, neither observing how she was dressed, nor the effect of the picture they together composed in the landscape. Their conversation was in the briefest phrase for some time. Grace being somewhat disconcerted, through not having understood till they were about to start, that Giles was to be her sole conductor in place of her father. When they were in the open country he spoke. "'Don't Brownlee's farm buildings look strange to you, now that they have been moved bodily from the hollow where the old one stood, to the top of the hill?' She admitted that they did, though she should not have seen any difference in them if he had not pointed it out. "'They had a good crop of bitter sweets. They couldn't grind them all.' nodding towards an orchard where some heaps of apples had been left lying ever since the ingathering. She said, yes, but looking at another orchard. Why, you're looking at John apple trees. You know bitter sweets. You're used to well enough. I am afraid I have forgotten, and it is getting too dark to distinguish. Winterborne did not continue. It seemed as if the knowledge and interest which had formerly moved Grace's mind had quite died away from her. He wondered whether the special attributes of his image in the past had evaporated like these other things. However that might be, the fact at present was merely this, that where he was seeing John Appletree's and farm buildings, she was beholding a far remoter scene, a scene no less innocent and simple indeed, but much contrasting, a broad lawn in the fashionable suburb of a fast city, the evergreen leaves shining in the evening sun, amid which bounding girls, gracefully clad in artistic arrangements of blue, brown, red, black, and white, were playing at games with laughter and chat, in all the pride of life, the notes of a piano and harp trembling in the air from the open windows adjoining. Moreover, they were girls, and this was a fact which Grace Melbury's delicate femininity could not lose sight of, whose parents Giles would have addressed with the deferential sir or madam. Beside this vision scene, the homely farmsteads did not quite hold their own from her present twenty-year point of survey. For all his woodland sequestration, Giles knew the primitive simplicity of the subject he had started, and now sounded a deeper note. "'Twas very odd what we said to each other years ago. I often think of it. I mean, our saying that if we still liked each other when you were twenty and I twenty-five, we'd—' "'That was Giles Tattle.' Hm," said Giles suddenly. "'I mean, we were young,' she said more considerately. That gruff manner of his in making inquiries reminded her that he was unaltered in much. "'Yes, I beg your pardon, Miss Melbury. Your father sent me to meet you to-day.' "'I know it, and I'm glad of it.' He seemed satisfied with her tone, and went on. At that time you were sitting beside me at the back of your father's covered car, when we were coming home from gypsying, all the party being squeezed in together as tight as sheep in an auction pen. It got darker and darker, and I said, I forget the exact words, but I put my arm around your waist, and there you let it stay till your father, sitting in front, suddenly stopped telling his story to Farmer Bollin to light his pipe. 
The flash shone into the car, and showed us all up distinctly. <laughs> My arm flew from your waist like lightning, yet not so quickly but that some of them had seen and laughed at us. Yet your father, to our amazement, instead of being angry, was mild as milk, and seemed quite pleased. Have you forgotten all that, or haven't you? She owned that she remembered it very well, now that he mentioned the circumstances. But goodness, I must have been in short frocks, she said. Come now, Miss Melbury, that won't do. Short frocks, indeed. You know better as well as I. Grace thereupon declared that she would not argue with an old friend she valued so highly as she valued him, saying the words with the easy elusiveness that will be polite at all costs. It might possibly be true, she added, that she was getting on in girlhood when that event took place, but if it were so, then she was virtually no less than an old woman now, so far did the time seem removed from her present. "'Do you ever look at things philosophically, instead of personally?' she asked. "'I can't say that I do,' answered Giles, his eyes lingering far ahead upon a dark spot, which proved to be a brougham. "'I think you may sometimes, with advantage,' said she. Look at yourself as a pitcher drifting on the stream with other pitchers, and consider what contrivances are most desirable for avoiding cracks in general, and not only for saving your poor one. Shall I tell you all about Bath or Cheltenham, or places on the continent that I have visited last summer? With all my heart. Then she described places and persons, in such terms as might have been used for that purpose by any woman to any man within the four seas. So entirely absent from that description was everything specially appertaining to her own existence. And when she had done, she said gaily, "'Now, do you tell me in return what has happened in Hintock since I have been away?' "'Anything to keep the conversation away from her and me,' said Giles within him. It was true cultivation had so far advanced in the soil of Miss Melbury's mind as to lead her to talk by rote of anything save of that she knew well, and had the greatest interest in developing, that is, to say, herself. He had not proceeded far with his somewhat bald narration when they drew near the carriage that had been preceding them for some time. Miss Melbury inquired if he knew whose carriage it was. Winterbourne, although he had seen it, had not taken it into account. On examination he said it was Mrs. Sharman's. Grace watched the vehicle and its easy roll, and seemed to feel more nearly akin to it than to the one she was in. "'We can polish off the mileage as well as they, come to that,' said Winterbourne, reading her mind, and rising to emulation at what it bespoke he whipped on the horse. This it was which had brought the nose of Mr. Melbury's old grey close to the back of Mrs. Sharman's much-eclipsing vehicle. "'There's Marty South sitting up with the coachman,' he said, discerning her by her dress. "'Ah, poor Marty! I must ask her to come to see me this very evening. How does she happen to be riding there?' I don't know. It's very singular. Thus these people with converging destinies went along the road together, till Winterbourne, leaving the track of the carriage, turned into Little Hintock, where almost the first house was the timber merchants. Pencils of dancing light streamed out of the windows sufficiently to show the white laurestinus flowers and glance over the polished leaves of laurel. The interior of the rooms could be seen distinctly, warmed up by the fire-flames which in the parlour were reflected from the glass of the pictures and bookcase, and in the kitchen from the utensils and ware. "'Let us look at the dear place for a moment before we call them,' she said. In the kitchen dinner was preparing, for though Melbury dined at one o'clock at other times, to-day the meal had been kept back for grace. 
a rickety old spit was in motion, its end being fixed in the fire-dog, and the hole kept going by means of a cord, conveyed over pulleys along the ceiling to a large stone suspended in a corner of the room. Old Grammar Oliver came in and wound it up with a rattle like that of a mill. In the parlour a large shade of Mrs. Melbury's head fell on the wall and ceiling, but before the girl had regarded this room many moments their presence was discovered, and her father and stepmother came out to welcome her. The characters of the Melbury family was of that kind which evinces some shyness in showing strong emotion among each other, a trait frequent in rural households, and one which stands in curiously inverse relation to most of the peculiarities distinguishing villagers from the people of towns. Thus, hiding their warmer feelings under their commonplace talk all round, Grace's reception produced no extraordinary demonstrations. But that more was felt than was enacted appeared from the fact that her father, in taking her indoors, quite forgot the presence of Giles without, as did also Grace herself. He said nothing, but took the gig around to the yard, and called out from the spar-house the man who particularly attended to these matters, when there was no conversation to draw him off among the copse-workers inside. Winterbourne then returned to the door with the intention of entering the house. The family had gone into the parlour, and were still absorbed in themselves. The fire was, as before, the only light, and it irradiated Grace's face and hands, so as to make them look wondrously smooth and fair besides those of the two elders, shining also through the loose hair about her temples, as sunlight through a break. Her father was surveying her in a dazed conjecture. So much had she developed and progressed in manner and stature since he had last set eyes on her. Observing these things, Winterbourne remained dubious by the door, mechanically tracing with his fingers certain time-worn letters carved in the jams, initials of bygone generations of householders who had lived and died there. No, he declared to himself, he would not enter and join the family. They had forgotten him, and it was enough for to-day that he had brought her home. Still, he was a little surprised that her father's eagerness to send him for grace should have resulted in such an anticlimax as this. He walked softly away into the lane towards his own house, looking back when he reached the turning, from which he could get a last glimpse of the timber merchant's roof. He hazarded guesses as to what Grace was saying just at that moment, and murmured with some self-derision, "'Nothing about me.' He looked also in the other direction, and saw against the sky the thatched hip and solitary chimney of Marty's cottage, and thought of her, too, struggling bravely along under that humble shelter among her spargads and pots and skimmers. At the timber merchants, in the meantime, the conversation flowed, and, as Giles Winterbourne had rightly enough deemed, on subjects in which he had no share. Among the excluding matters there was, for one, the effect upon Mr. Melbury of the womanly mien and manners of his daughter, which took him so much unawares that, though it did not make him absolutely forget the existence of her conductor homeward, thrust Giles's image back into quite the obscurest cellarage of his brain. Another was his interview with Mrs. Sharman's agent that morning, at which the lady herself had been present for a few minutes. Melbury had purchased some standing timber from her a long time before, and now that the date had come for felling it, he was left to pursue almost his own course. This was what the household were actually talking of during Giles's cogitation without, and Melbury's satisfaction with the clear atmosphere that had arisen between himself and the deity of the groves which enclosed his residence was the cause of a counterbalancing mistiness on the side towards Winterbourne. "'So thoroughly does she trust me,' said Melbury, 
that I might fell, top, lop, on my own judgment, any stick of timber, whatever in her wood, and fix the price in it and settle the matter. But, name it all, I wouldn't do such a thing. However, it may be useful to have this good understanding with her. I wish she took more interest in the place, and stayed here all the year round. I'm afraid it is not her regard for you, but her dislike of Hintock that makes her so easy about the trees, said Mrs. Melbury. When dinner was over, Grace took a candle and began to ramble pleasurably through the rooms of her old home, from which she had latterly become well-nigh an alien. Each nook and each object revived a memory, and simultaneously modified it. The chambers seemed lower than they had appeared on any previous occasion of her return, the surfaces of both walls and ceiling standing in such relations to the eye that it could not avoid taking microscopic note of their irregularities and old fashion. Her own bedroom wore at once a look more familiar than when she had left it, and yet a face estranged. The world of little things therein gazed at her in helpless stationariness, as though they had tried and been unable to make any progress without her presence. Over the place where her candle had been accustomed to stand, when she had used to read in bed till the midnight hour, there was still the brown spot of smoke. She did not know that her father had taken especial care to keep it from being cleaned off. Having concluded her perambulation of this now uselessly commodious edifice, Grace began to feel that she had come a long journey since the morning, and when her father had been up himself, as well as his wife, to see that her bedroom was comfortable and the fire burning, she prepared to retire for the night. No sooner, however, was she in bed than her momentary sleepiness took itself off, and she wished she had stayed up longer. She amused herself by listening to the old familiar noises that she could hear still to be going on downstairs, and by looking towards the window as she lay. The blind had been drawn up, as she used to have it when a girl, and she could just discern the dim tree-tops against the sky on the neighbouring hill. Beneath this meeting line of light and shade nothing was visible save one solitary point of light, which blinked as the tree-twigs waved to and fro before its beams. From its position it seemed to radiate from the window of a house on the hillside. The house had been empty when she was last at home, and she wondered who inhabited the place now. Her conjectures, however, were not intently carried on, and she was watching the light quite idly, when it gradually changed colour and at length shone blue as a sapphire. Thus it remained several minutes, and then it passed through violet to red. Her curiosity was so widely awakened by the phenomenon that she sat up in bed, and stared steadily at the shine. An appearance of this sort, sufficient to excite attention anywhere, was no less than a marvel in Hintock, as Grace had known the hamlet. Almost every diurnal and nocturnal effect in that woodland place had hitherto been the direct result of the irregular terrestrial role which produced the season's changes. But here was something dissociated from these normal sequences, and foreign to local habit and knowledge. It was about this moment that Grace heard the household below preparing to retire, the most emphatic noise in the proceeding being that of her father bolting the doors. Then the stairs creaked, and her father and mother passed her chamber. The last to come was Grammar Oliver. Grace slid out of bed, ran across the room, and, lifting the latch, said, "'I am not asleep, Grammer. Come in and talk to me.' Before the old woman had entered, Grace was again under the bedclothes. Grammer set down her candlestick and seated herself on the edge of Miss Melbury's coverlet. "'I want you to tell me what light that is I see on the hillside,' said Grace. 
Mrs. Oliver looked across. "'Oh, that,' she said, "'is from the doctors. He's often doing things of that sort. Perhaps you don't know that we've a doctor living here now, Mr. Fitzpiers by name.' Grace admitted that she had not heard of him. "'Well, then, miss, he's come here to get up a practice. I know him very well, through going there to help him scrub sometimes, which your father said I might do if I wanted to in my spare time.' Being a bachelor man, he've only a lad in the house. Oh, yes, I know him very well. Sometimes he'd talk to me as if I were his own mother. Indeed. Yes, Grammer, he said one day, when I asked him why he came here, where there's hardly anybody living. I'll tell you why I came here. I took a map, and I marked on it where Dr. Jones's practice ends, to the north of the district, and where Mr. Taylor's ends on the south, and little Jimmy Green's on the east, and somebody else's to the west. Then I took a pair of compasses, and I found the exact middle of the country that was left between these bounds. And that middle was little Hintock. So here I am. But, Lord, there, poor young man. Why? He said, Grammar Oliver, I've been here three months, and, oh, there are many good people in the Hintocks and the villages around, and a scattered practice is often a very good one, I don't seem to get many patients, and there's no society at all, and I'm pretty near melancholy mad," he said with a great yawn. I should be quite if I went off from my books and my lab, laboratory, and what not. Grammar, I was made for higher things, and then he'd yawn and yawn again. Was he really made for higher things, do you think? I mean, is he clever? Well, no. How can he be clever? He may be able to join up a broken man or woman after a fashion, and put his finger on an ache if you tell him nearly where it is. But these young men, they should live to my time of life, and then they'd see how clever they were at five and twenty. And yet he's a project, a real project, and says the oddest rosoms. Ah, Grammar, he said at another time, let me tell you that everything is nothing. There's only me, and not me, in the whole world and he told me that no man's hands could help what they did any more than the hands of a clock. Yes, he's a man of strange meditations, and his eyes seem to see as far as the North Star. He will soon go away, no doubt. I don't think so. Grace did not say why, and Grammar hesitated. At last she went on. Don't tell your father or mother, miss, if I let you know a secret. Grace gave the required promise. Well, he talks of buying me, so he won't go away just yet. Buying you? How? Not my soul, my body when I'm dead. One day when I was there cleaning, he said, Grammar, you've a large brain, a very large organ of a brain, he said. A woman's is usually four ounces less than a man's, but yours is man-size. Well, then, <laughs> after he'd flattered me a bit like that, he said he'd give me ten pounds to have me as anatomy after my debt. Well, knowing I'd no chick nor child left, and nobody with any interest in me, I thought, faith, if I can be of any use to my fellow creatures after I'm gone, they are welcome to my services. And so I said I'd think it over, and would most likely agree and take the ten pounds. Now, this is a secret, miss, between us two. The money would be very useful to me, and I see no harm in it. Of course there's no harm, but, oh, Grammar, how can you think to do it? I wish you hadn't told me. I wish I hadn't, if you don't like to know it, miss. But you needn't mind. Lord, <laughs> I shall keep him waiting many a year, let bless ye. I hope you will, I am sure. 
The girl thereupon fell into such deep reflection that conversation languished, and Grammar Oliver, taking her candle, wished Miss Melbury good-night. The latter's eyes rested on the distant glimmer, around which she allowed her reasoning fancy to play in vague eddies, that shaped the doings of the philosopher behind that light on the lines of intelligence just received. It was strange to her to come back from the world, to little Hintock, and find in one of its nooks, like a tropical plant in a hedgerow, a nucleus of advanced ideas and practices, which had nothing in common with the life around. Chemical experiments, anatomical projects, and metaphysical conceptions had found a strange home here. Thus she remained thinking, the imagined pursuits of the man behind the light intermingling with conjectural sketches of his personality, till her eyes fell together with their own heaviness, and she slept. End of chapter 6